right, just take your seats, go ahead, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Before we begin this sermon, I just want to thank the Bridge on Ton for allowing us to use their facility this afternoon. This is just a wonderful blessing to us to have a place today to meet together, to worship the Lord, and, and to hear from Him. So uh, if you're even here with us uh, this afternoon, thank you for, for allowing us to use your facility. We're glad to be able to worship with you and uh, look to God's Word. We're going to be looking this morning at matters of life and death. Matters of life and death. And often we might hear this statement or even maybe use it ourselves. It's a matter of life and death. Sometimes we use this seriously, sometimes not so seriously, right? There are genuine contexts, maybe in matters of health and safety, when we would want to use this statement, it's a matter of life and death. Other times we may use it in a question or put it into a negative to, to put something into the right perspective that's not a matter of life and death and to make sure we're looking at things the way that we ought to be. Well, this morning, in God's Word, we're going to look at some matters that are certainly life and death. We're going to look at matters in such clear and unmistakable terms that we're forced to really stop and think and reflect upon our problematic lives and the eternal destiny of each and every person. We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes and even in just the first few chapters we've seen again and again that life in this world apart from God is meaningless. It's vanity, the preacher says. He causes us to ask ourselves, what's the point of all of this? And the reason he does so is very purposeful, is to drive us to God. We live in a fallen world. God has revealed this to us in his word. We see this plainly all around us. I mean, you don't have to stare very long at this world before you see it as it really is. Life is broken. Life is broken. And we also know that at the end of this broken life, from what God has revealed to us as well in his word, and from what we certainly see all around us, is that death is coming. Death is coming. And what this passage is going to point out to us is this, even though life is broken, and even though death is coming, for those who are in Christ Jesus, rest is given. Jesus said, let all who are weary and and weighed down with heavy burdens, let all who see that life on this earth is both really hard and also coming to an end, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. We desperately need this rest. And so from our time together in God's word today, I want us to consider our troublesome life and our approaching death And we're going to draw out three questions raised and three secrets revealed so that we can lay hold of the wonderful rest that Jesus gives. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was none to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here's question number one as we first look at our troublesome life. Where's the justice? Where's the justice? The preacher begins in verse 16 describing what he saw as he looked across the landscape of this world and it's the same thing that we see. Rampant injustice. What's good and right and fair is trampled on and replaced by what is evil and wrong and outrageous. In the very places where justice is supposed to be upheld, instead the guilty go unpunished. People lie and steal and murder and get away with it. While the innocent are punished for crimes that they never even committed or or crimes that aren't even crimes at all. Corruption, abuse, and deception are the norm. Even in places where the common good of all people is supposed to be the central objective, under the mask of things like religion and education, what is evil is often called good and what is good is called evil. Truth is confused with error. Darkness is named light. Justice is overrun by injustice. And we look at this world around us and we see unrestrained wickedness at every turn. The same thing could be said of Solomon's day as was said about the days that preceded him, the days of the judges. Remember that? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And friends, the same can be said about our day, right? Because as Solomon showed us in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And so our hearts cry out, where is the justice? Nothing's more infuriating than when wickedness replaces righteousness. I mean, what what does the ability to buy one's way out of trouble have to do with what's right and wrong? Why does a loud majority, or sorry, minority, get to dictate what defines a marriage or an individual's God-given gender? Why is life taken from an uncountable number of babies every single day? Why should civil authorities be allowed to make up whatever novel rules they want and enforce them upon people who are holding to biblical values? How is it okay that Christianity is treated differently than every other religion? Some of you, some people that you know maybe and love, have experienced these kinds of injustices. 
Some of you right now are being blamed for something that you didn't do. Some of you are being called names that aren't even close to true. Some of you have had something done to you that ought to be punished and it isn't being dealt with. Some of you don't have a job because for some devious reason that has nothing to do with what is good and right. Some of you have been treated unfairly at school by a teacher because they only see what they want to see and they don't want to see things as they really are. Last week we saw that our lives are marked by different seasons and and we know this to be true. These seasons are marked with trouble and wickedness and injustice. Injustice is that we're powerless to prevent and, and so we're right to cry out. Life is not fair. Where's the justice? An an end to all unfairness is one of the deepest desires of the human heart. And rightly so. It should be. The world is not meant to be like this. And we ask the question, will there ever be a time for justice? Is there really no accountability for the wicked? People are living apart from God with with no regard for Him and His ways. Will they ever have to answer to Him? That's the first question raised in this passage this morning. The second question concerning our troublesome life is this. Where's the certainty? Where's the certainty? We're going to come back to verse 17, but but look at verses 18 through 20. We we read about the beast and, and how humans and beasts are alike and some of you are wondering what in the world does this even mean and you know that's the point that's the point preacher's trying to get us to think here and and he he wants us to scratch our heads and say wait a minute what what do you mean we're just like the beast well here's what he's not saying he's not talking about who is and who isn't created in the image of God He's not equating meaning and purpose of of humans to animals. He's not saying that animals and people are the same in every respect. So what is he talking about? He's talking about biology here, okay? Not destiny. At least not yet. If you look at the middle again of verse 19, it says, as one dies, so dies the other. That's the fact. That's what he's trying to draw our attention to. Nobody lives forever. There isn't one person in this room who's going to live forever. That's verse 20, right? All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And we know from the earliest chapters in our Bible that this is the result of man's sinful rebellion against God. God told the first man and the first woman Before death had ever entered into the world, he said this in Genesis chapter 2, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. And yet they chose to disobey God, and the most severe consequence was introduced into the world, spiritual and physical death. And in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam, he said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This far there is certainty. This life will not last forever. None can escape the reality. 
that everybody dies. Downplaying death is not healthy for you. The reality is your life and my life are coming to an end, and this is troublesome. I don't want you to hear me say that in in any way that is other than sincere. I I mean, I'm not making light of this fact. I know some of you very recently have have had to say goodbye to a loved one. I, I know there's others in our church who are dealing with imminent death in their families. I know that some of you have stared death right in the face, not knowing whether or not it was your time. And so I don't take this matter lightly. Death is serious and it's sad and troublesome. And it's reality. But listen, the most serious question about death is not if we're going to die. It's not not even when are we going to die. Listen, it's what will happen after we die. I think pushing this thought of death out of our minds, refusing to think too long, to to dwell too long on our own mortality is, is one of Satan's greatest goals because it stops us from thinking about what will happen after we die. In verse 21, God's word says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? This is really where the question of certainty comes in. Can we really be sure that after death we have a future life? Are human beings really better off or no better off than animals? The preacher's trying to force the reader here to take a step back and seriously think long and hard about the end of life here on earth and to ask the question, where is my certainty? And some people, maybe even some of you here this morning, have become spiritually numb, you know, disillusioned and, and bitter, and you've concluded that there can't be any certainty about life beyond the grave. You're questioning, where is God in all of this? Listen, you come to the right place this afternoon. Bear with me. Keep, keep listening. We're going to get to some answers here in a moment. But first, one more question about our troublesome life. And here it is. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? In chapter 4, the first three verses, the preacher continues on with this theme of matters of life and death. And he says he looked around at life here on earth apart from God and he said he saw all the oppressions, all the tears and the extreme hardships that people have to go through and twice he says he saw no one to comfort. Evil cruelty reigning over the weary and the distressed. The powerful keeping the weak under subjection. Dominant leaders crushing their citizens, their workers and even their disciples. Unbearable deprivation, hunger, poverty, terrorism, human trafficking. The list could go on and on. We see such horrible realities in this world. And it's not uncommon to wonder, would some people be better off dead? Or maybe would I? Would I be better off dead? Given all the heartache of this fallen world, we sometimes even wonder, like Solomon wonders here in verse 3, would it be better to have never even been born in the first place? Life is full of sorrow. Where's the hope? 
It's not uncommon in the face of extreme trouble to sometimes wish one had never been born. Think back to the Old Testament. People like Job and the prophet Jeremiah both wondered aloud if it had been better for them to never even have come out of their mother's womb. When life is hard, very, very hard, is there really no point to even living at all? Listen, the fact is that apart from God, this is a very reasonable assessment, isn't it? Yet Solomon didn't write these things so that we would have no hope. He's not introducing to us these questions in some trivial way like the tree that falls in the forest when nobody's around. No, these things really matter. And and the preacher raises these troubling questions to get us to think deeply about matters of life and death, our life and our death. And he presents these enigmas and and he kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't he? And, and, and he kind of tips his hand as well at some points in, in this section and as well in the book as a broader whole. But, but listen, ultimately, ultimately to get clarity, we must look to the book, the book as a whole. Ultimately, this passage in this book is pointing us to what every passage in every book of the Bible points us to And that's the person of Jesus Christ. So what we want to do now is turn our attention from our troublesome life and we want to look at our approaching death and three secrets revealed in the Word of God. The first secret is this. Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is the righteous judge I can rest in him. After surveying the extreme wickedness and injustice that takes place under the sun, apart from any regard for the Lord God Almighty, the preacher says, back in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time. Catch that? There is a time. For every matter and for every work. Contrary to what most people think and how most people live, there is a time for judgment. A time of reward for those who have served God and followed Jesus Christ and a time of retribution for those who have not. Every single thing that happens in your life and mine will have its stay in court. Every moment will be answerable to God. Every thought, every word, and every deed. We can describe God in many different ways, right? God is creator. God is king. God is warrior. He is father. He's shepherd. He is master. Listen, make make no mistake about this. God is judge. God is judge. And we do well to remember the words of, of Abraham who said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, he asked? And of course, the answer is, he must. 
God will take sides. God will deal with it. Justice will be done. God will make all things right in the end. This is the bottom line. A lot of things on this earth will go right and a lot of things on this earth will go wrong. But there is a fixed day when God will sort everything out with perfect judgment. And the Bible says that the righteous judge is God the Son. In Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter goes to Cornelius' home and, and to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family. You remember that? He's preaching about Jesus to Cornelius and his family. And, and Peter says that Jesus commanded his disciples to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the righteous judge. And for some of you here today, this needs to be heard as a great warning. That your sin demands a just penalty. If you've not come to Jesus for forgiveness, if you've not submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life, listen, it's not, I have to tell you this, it's not going to go well with you on that day when you stand face to face with Him. Look what it says in John chapter 3. These are the words of Jesus. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Don't ignore this truth. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes wants to awaken us to. Our lives here and now matter for all eternity. This is why we need to keep last things first. Right? Spoiler, spoiler alert again. Go to the end of Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 12. I want to show you the very last verse in this book. Verse 14. You see it there? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's not one second of our lives that Jesus, the righteous judge, won't take into account. There is a time for every matter. And for some of you, I hope you're wondering, I hope you're asking the question, what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? That's the most important question you could ever ask in all of your life. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is this, turn away from your sin and trust that Jesus took the wrath in your place. Believe that he came to die, taking on the fury of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. God's justice requires payment for your sin and for mine. And the question is, will you be the one to pay? Or will you look to Jesus? whose perfect sacrifice paid it all. 
if you are a follower of Jesus. While there's no condemnation for those who are in him, this passage calls you as well to remember that your whole life, your whole life will be examined by him. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you're a follower of Christ, it won't be for retribution, but for rewards. But brothers and sisters, let this, let this make us to take sin more seriously in our lives. Let, us be a, let this be a call to, to get our affairs in order, so to speak, spiritually. Don't have conversations today that you wouldn't want to have a conversation with Jesus about. Don't dwell on thoughts today that you wouldn't want to stand before Jesus to have to give an explanation of. Don't do things today that you wouldn't, that are not going to make for you to stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to live our lives as though we're not going to have to give an account to Jesus. There's there's no guilt or shame. Let me just be clear. There's no guilt or shame for those who have been washed by his blood. But listen, the rewards that we often forfeit because we live as though every single matter doesn't matter. Now what about my hurts? What about all the evil that I see and experience in my life? Again, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this needs to be the frame of our mind. Like Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Or Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, If it seems slow, he says, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God's timing is perfect. Know that your injustices that you experience do have a voice in God's presence. And when you don't know why or or how long, and life just isn't fair, the one who came to this earth and was treated more unjustly by the hands of evil men than any of us could ever know, he knows your pain, and you can find rest in him knowing it won't always be this way because one day he will make it all right. This isn't to say that we don't pursue justice, that we don't strive after what is right and fair. We just don't put all our stock in expecting to find ultimate satisfaction here and now before the fullness of time has come. Jesus is the righteous judge. I can find rest in him. The second secret that God's word reveals about our approaching death is this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I can find hope in him. I can find rest in him. Death is coming. That's for certain. But nobody's existence ends at that point. 
And Solomon says, who, who knows, right? Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He knows, trust me. In chapter 12 and verse 7, he, he says, the spirit of man rises up to go back to God. He's trying to get us to think. And while the word of God says that there is eternal damnation in store for those who have not genuinely followed Jesus, it also says that there is eternal life. Eternal life for those who belong to him. Remember John chapter 11, the account of Lazarus? Jesus' friend who died and and Jesus delayed his coming so that he could go and, and raise him from the dead. And, and he goes and, and Martha, his sister, comes running to Jesus. And, and she says, Jesus, if, if you were only here. And they start talking about the resurrection from the dead. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What, what comforting truths. What, what rest we can find when we lay hold of the promises of Jesus. And his promise is guaranteed by the reality that he himself rose from the grave. We can have a sure and certain hope of life after death because we know that he rose after death. And so will we. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, often read at, at funerals. Paul says this in God's word, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He, he uses this euphemism, right? Asleep. They're dead. Why? So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Listen, apart from God, fear of death is really reasonable. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me just tell you this, you should be afraid to die. Okay, tell your friends, tell your family that. They should be afraid of death without Christ. But with Christ, with Christ, you can have rest in Him, knowing that after your earthly life is over, you will enjoy eternal life in His presence. Now look at what the preacher says in chapter 3 and verse 22. He says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? What do we make of of this? Well, here's what this means. It means that even though we can't see into the future and know every last detail and, and exactly how it will all play out, if we have assurance of eternal life, we can find joy in the everyday life, even the hardships of life here and now. You can rejoice in whatever good work God gives you to do while you wait for the day of judgment because your confidence is in Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, a man who thought and wrote much about matters of life and death, in his famous list of resolutions included this one, number 17. He said this, Resolved that I will live 
so as I wish I shall have done when I come to die. This is how we ought to live. In light of the end, not wrecked by the the troublesome life that we're going through. Life is broken, but this doesn't mean we can't find enjoyment in the activities that God has given us to do. We can can rest in Jesus in the midst of a cruel and harsh world, enjoying life as a gift from him. But what if it gets really, really hard? Well, this brings us to the final secret revealed. Jesus is the comforting shepherd. I can rest in him. Sometimes life gets so unbearably difficult. So much so, as we saw earlier, that one might wonder if it would be better to have never even lived at all. Like I said, Solomon doesn't write these things to just leave us hanging in despair, wondering if there's really any point at all to our existence. He doesn't write this to to lead anyone to conclude, well, I guess there's no comfort then. No, he writes these things to point us to the one who is our comfort, the comforting shepherd. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd that David talked about in Psalm 23 when he said these words, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your mercy follows me all the days of my life, he said. Jesus says to you and to me today, he says, I know life is hard. Come to me. I will give you rest. I will be your comforter. My comfort is your peace. Now, in this life, and forevermore in the life to come. One of the most comforting passages in all the Bible comes at the very end in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, John records these words. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now here it is. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Some have asked, and maybe even you're wondering today, why, why didn't God just keep it like this from the beginning? Why allow sin and rebellion? Why the fall of man? Why so much pain and suffering? I think that's really what we're saying if we wonder if we'd been better off having never been born. Wouldn't it be better 
If God had have just created an eternal paradise of bliss right from the beginning and not allowed anyone to have to go through such horrible evil. If we catch ourselves thinking in these ways, we, we need to remember that if we think we have a better plan than God, then that's really a very bad plan. We don't have the wisdom of God. And yet we can know this for sure, that if it would have made his glory shine brighter, if it would have put his love more on display to have skipped over the troubles of this life, then dare I say he would have done it that way. Therefore, the only conclusion we must make is that if a broken world is his decree, and it is, then it must be part of the best possible plan. Among many other truths that we wouldn't otherwise be able to understand. Listen, if there was no need for comfort, then how would we know the magnificent comfort of God? C.S. Lewis is right. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our common need for comfort is meant to make us look for him who is the comforting shepherd. The pain and the hurt of this world is meant to drive us to the rest that can be found only in Jesus. This doesn't mean that God likes oppression, by the way. Over and over again, God condemns oppression. He rebukes oppressors. He calls people to alleviate oppression. We, we are to help those who are oppressed. We're to fight against oppression. But listen, the greatest oppression of all is spiritual oppression. And Jesus, he came to deliver us from the snare of the devil. So let us proclaim to others, there is a righteous judge. There is resurrection in life. There is a comforting Shepherd, his name is Jesus. And if you come to him, you will find rest for your weary soul. For sure, friends, life is broken. And for sure, death is coming. But here's the good news. Jesus is alive. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's the risen king. And because he's alive, that means that the curse of sin is broken. It means there's forgiveness and eternal life. And in him, rest is given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded this morning, having looked at your word, that even though death is a reality and even though hardships in this life are certainly a reality. You've defeated death. You've conquered the grave. You've given us hope beyond this life. You've given us comfort in our sorrows. And so we look to you and we say thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope that is found in Christ. Thank you for the rest that is offered in his name. Thank you that Jesus is alive. Oh God, these are the most precious of truths and 
We just want to declare to you that, that you are an awesome God and, and your forgiveness, your redemption is the greatest treasure of our hearts and where it's not, Lord, would you make it to be, we ask. God, change our hearts. Set our affections on you as we, as we sing now in the name of Jesus. Amen.